John, thank you for that encouraging gospel-saturated prayer and leading us through Psalm 51 and David's prayer of confession and repentance in regards to the incidents that we're going to look at today in this text. So if you would, take your Bibles and open them with me to the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, 2 Samuel, chapter 11. Um, We're going to be covering chapters 11 through 14, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time, just like John did last week, that the time will not be evenly spent between these chapters, okay? We are going to walk through chapters 11 and 12 in great detail, and then we are going to significantly summarize chapters 13 and 14. I'm telling you that at the outset, that way you know, that way when there's seven minutes left and we just arrive at chapter 13, you won't panic. I might, I might panic, but you won't panic because you know that that's the plan ahead of time. And there's uh, reasons for that as we see as we'll get going. Um, last week, as I recall, um, John began with an illustration of driving or riding from, I believe, the icy tundra of Canada to the sunshiny promised land of Florida. Was that right, John? Okay. You might remember that. And in explaining that illustration, he said that Florida is like For us, the gospel of Matthew, we are almost there. We are almost through Samuel and the turmoil of these kings and all this going on. We are almost ready to to arrive at the book of Matthew where we will see finally, are we there yet? Yes, we're there. The, The king, the true and better David will have arrived on the scene. The king that clearly we haven't gotten yet in Samuel will finally be here in the gospel of Matthew. You describe that as like arriving in Florida for this beautiful vacation. But I do have to say that while not Florida, the message from last week was sort of like a very nice rest stop before you get there. Because I don't know if you noticed, the title of the message last week was, The Kingdom is Established. Where we left David last week, the Davidic kingdom was going great. Like things were going awesome. What had happened is that finally, after all of this turmoil with the period of the judges and then, and then Eli and his sons and then Samuel was better, but then we got Saul and now finally we've got David, no more hiding in caves and running from Saul and, and anointed but not yet sitting on the throne. We've got God's choice of king, King David, the choice according to God's own heart, sitting on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem, in the right place, the people of God are there, and they even have rest from their enemies. Like, this has not happened before. That doesn't mean there wasn't any fighting or wars or whatever going on, as we're going to see today, but it does mean that they were not, at, uh, they were not under threat anymore. Their existence as a nation was no longer in peril. The ark is there. David is there in his palace. God's king, in God's place, things are wonderful. And all that had to happen is David just had to obey faithfully according to the requirements of the law-keeping king laid out in the law of God, and in particular, Deuteronomy. But that's not going to happen, is it? You might notice that the title of the sermon today is The Failure of the lesser David. 
the failure of the lesser David. How, how, is, how is it that we're going to go from last week, the kingdom is established, to this week, the failure of the lesser David? I mean, what, what happens? I mean, we know, if you've read this story before, we know the logistics of what happens. We know there's adultery and there's murder and there's cover-up. But, but why? Like, how did, how did that David become this David? This is troubling. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, that David was reigning with justice and equity to all people before this. He was. And, and by the way, as he did that, he was rightly, because his whole life was, was prophetic and pointing us toward Messiah, he was rightly in his rule in justice and equity, he was rightly prefiguring the ultimate and true David who would come later and how he would rule perfectly. But then chapter 11 hits. And before we even get started, we have to ask the question, are is, is David still in any way going to point us to Christ? Because he has been so far not perfect by any means, but David's life has been a prophetic pointer forward to us to expect the coming greater David and Messiah. David is the humble shepherd king raised up from among his brothers. He was the unlikely representative of the people of God who fought the champion of the enemies of God and killed him by crushing his head and then cutting it off. He's the one who won back the captured people and all the spoil, and thus he was the king who took captivity captive and distributed those gifts to men. He is a gigantic pointer forward to Messiah. Well, what now as we're about to see David plunge headlong into sin? I would simply say that what we're going to see today together is we're going to see a picture of what Messiah must be by looking at what David failed to be. Does that make sense? A picture of what Messiah must be by looking at what David failed to be. David is going to show us in this passage Messiah in the same way that a negative shows a picture. Now, I've, I don't think I've ever taken a good photograph in my life, but my understanding is that people who are good at those things, if you use actual film, you get these things called negatives, and you can look up and hold the negative up into the light, and you can see the picture clearly, but everything is what? Everything is reversed. The, the brightest tones in the real thing are the darkest in the negative. And the darkest tones in the negative are the brightest in the real thing. And in that way, by seeing what David fails to be in this passage, we're going to be directed to what King Jesus and our Messiah must be where he failed. The text is going to outline for us in three large... Um, Points. Chapter 11, we're going to see David responds to Yahweh's blessing with disobedience. Chapter 2, we're going to see Yahweh respond to David's disobedience with kindness and consequences. And then, just briefly at the end, in chapters 13 to 14, we'll see the sword as it begins to devour in David's house. So look with me, if you would, at verse 1 of chapter 11, and we'll begin to walk through the text. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites, and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained 
at Jerusalem. Now, a lot, a lot is made of this, this first verse. Um, a lot of sermons go off the rails here at this point. They see David not being where he's supposed to be, not being what he's supposed to be doing, and they go, okay, this is, this is step one of 20 uh, as to how to fight sin. Don't be like David. Be where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing. Now, that's true, but it should be pointed out that the, the king didn't always go out to all the battles, right? The king didn't always go out to fight all the battles. So I don't want to press that too far, but I think we are supposed to see a very clear contrast between this David and the David that we saw in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10. Because the David that we saw in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, he was characterized by what I would call astonished gratitude at what the Lord had done for him. Just listen as I read one verse from chapter 7. David said in, in verse 18, when Yahweh poured out his promises upon him, he said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me this, thus far? That was his. He was just like, he was astonished that God would pour out his promises and his grace upon him. He's like, Lord, who am I? And then in the next chapter, David is going out and fighting the Lord's battles. And it says he sought the Lord and said the Lord gave him victory here. And the Lord gave him victory here and here and here and here. And then we get to chapter 11. And he's sitting at home. His general and all the fighting men of Israel are out there fighting, but he's not. Not because he had to go every time, but there is clearly a walking away from that astonished gratitude and overwhelming fervor to serve Yahweh. This David is different than the David in previous chapters. Now, verse 2, it happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the, uh, from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Once you step away, as David did, from this astonished gratitude at the Lord's blessings, therein you now have the fertile soil from which sin can grow. And grow it does. You should point out in this verse that the, the sin was not in the seeing the sin was not even in the, the noticing. Scripture itself says that she was there and that she was beautiful. The sin is when lust is conceived in David's heart as it is almost immediately. And at its core, lust, brothers and sisters, is ingratitude. It is taking what the Lord has given you and it is saying, that is not enough. I must have that. I must have this thing that he has not given to me. Lust is an inordinate, illicit desire to have for yourself that which God has not seen fit to give you. And this springs up in David's heart at this point. And so he inquires, verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, perhaps one of the men there, one of the advisors in his palace said, um, is, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You can almost sense the tone there. You knew who she was. Like, uh, David, uh, what, are you, what are you doing? Isn't this, isn't this Uriah the Hittite's wife? Now, would David have known who Uriah was? The answer is absolutely 
he would have. Because if we look in 2 Samuel chapter 23, Uriah the Hittite is listed as one of uh, David's mighty men, one of his mighty valiant warriors. David knew exactly who Uriah was. He didn't know who his wife was, but he does now. You would think at that point David could go, oh, hmm, never mind, guys, bad idea. I repent anyway. But he doesn't. He pursues and he persists. Look at verse 4. So David, man, and the, the, the verbs here are just so uncomfortably terse and short. So David sent messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. David sent, David took, David lay. It's not adorned with any description whatsoever. It's said in the starkest possible terms, David acts upon his selfish desire. Now, she had been purifying herself, it says, from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. By the way, that is Bathsheba's only words in this entire chapter, I am pregnant. People love to speculate about her. I think that's entirely unwise. This entire chapter is about the sinning king. Notice that in verse 5, she's referred to as the woman. That is not a reflection of the cultural viewpoint at the time or the viewpoint of the author of the book of Samuel. That's a reflection upon David's view of her. We see this man who takes another man's wife. She returns to her house, and in David's mind, the woman conceived, and she sent and told him, I'm pregnant. David has a problem, right? David has a big problem. Based on the content of the end of, or the beginning of verse 5, that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, there was a 0% possibility that this baby was anyone others than David. So now David has a situation. And so he engages, begins to engage in a cover-up. And he thinks, I need to get her husband, Uriah, back here. And I need to have a plausible explanation as to why this child is not going to be the fruit of our illicit union and how this sin can be covered up. So, verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. By the way, the Hittites were one of the people you read in Genesis 25, I believe, that were going to be wiped out so that the people of God could live in the land. But Uriah the Hittite was a part of the people of God. He served Yahweh. He served in the army. He was a mighty man of David. He was devoted. He was loyal. And as one commentator has said rightly, the only man in this whole chapter that's going to behave like a true Israelite is Uriah the Hittite. What a damning allegation that is. It says in verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Now, what, what an absolutely inane line of questioning. I mean, think about this. Uriah, one of David's mighty men, is on the front lines of this battle with the Ammonites. He gets word from David that the king wants to see you. So David is pulling him off of the battle, off of the front line, back home, back to Jerusalem, bringing him into his presence in the king's palace. I don't know what Uriah was thinking, but probably, oh, I don't know, this is important. Like, whoa, what's going on here? 
he shows up, and David's like, hey, Uriah, how's it going? Hey, how's Joab? How are the guys? You know, how's the war going? I mean, I don't know what Uriah must have been thinking, but probably along the lines of, are you serious right now? Like, <laughs> what? You brought, like, you know, it's the king, but you brought me off of the front lines of the war for this? And then he says, verse 8, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. It's obviously a euphemism for take some time off. Go down to your house and enjoy your life for a bit. Get cleaned up. Enjoy your bed. Enjoy your food. Enjoy your wife. And then it even says, Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. He even sent him a gift basket. He's like, you just, just, take a, just take a day, go home, enjoy. Then, you know what? Here's a gift basket. Why don't you guys have a weekend away at home? Uriah doesn't do this. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? See, David's perplexed because he's operating under the assumption that Uriah is as, I don't know, self-absorbed as he is right now, but he's not. It wouldn't even have been wrong for him to follow David's instructions, but he refuses. And look at the reply he gives in verse 11. This is so good. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, that is, tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Wow. What devotion to Yahweh Uriah the Hittite had. That, that almost sounds like kingly. That's the kind of thing you might have expected to hear coming out of David's mouth just a few chapters ago. But yet here it is with Uriah saying this. David has to increase the stakes here. Verse 12, David said to Uriah, you know what? Tell you what, remain here today and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained at Jerusalem that day and the next so he makes him wait another day. And then verse 13, David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David's like, I know what I'll do. I'll have a big party. I'll have him here. I'll make sure that Uriah gets drunk, which he ought not to have done, but he did. But he still goes out and sleeps outside the door of the king's palace and does not go down to his house. And I think we need to point out here that Uriah, drunk, has more of a conscience in this case before Yahweh than David does in his right mind. It's unbelievable. So he realized that this is not going to work. So David discerns now that he needs to get rid of Uriah. It is amazing, isn't it, when you're, when you're determined to cover up sin, collateral damage is I mean, that's just, that's no thing at all, like, because you're, you're going to cover this up. And David was determined. So verse 14 says, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Hmm. This is a terrible plan. 
These are expert warriors. David sends this message to Joab, which, by the way, would have been sealed with the king's seal, and he trusts Uriah's integrity enough to know that he won't open and read his own death warrant, gives it to Joab, and the plan is supposed to be, all right, Joab, go after a battle, and at, at some point on your signal, everybody knows to go back except for Uriah. And so at some point, he would just be like, uh, hey, guys, and then that would be it. The reason that's such an awful plan is because that would make it obvious to everyone involved that that particular skirmish, that particular battle, was an utter sham to do nothing but get rid of Uriah, which would have seriously compromised Joab in the eyes of his men. So it seems here that Joab makes a sinister improvement to the plan. Verse 16, and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Now, it didn't say how he died yet, right? It didn't say how he accomplished this, but we're going to see. Verse 19, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Oh, okay. Joab had his guys got way, way too close to the city wall. So the archers could just, just like that. A military blunder to be sure, but Uriah and many others died that way, making a better cover-up. That's what happened. And he knew David would be upset about the strategy. And if you skip down just a little bit, he tells his messenger to say when David asked, why did you go so near the wall in verse 21? Just tell him this. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And that'll shut the king's mouth. That's what he wanted anyway. And he accomplished it. So the messenger comes. He tells David that. Skip down just a little into verse 24, then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. This is the report that the messenger is giving to David. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then this, verse 25, look at this response from David. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. He basically says, Joe, it's fine. Don't worry. Don't worry about this little setback, this little defeat. You know how swords are. One day they kill one guy, the next day they kill another guy. You win some, you lose some, whatever. Just tell Joab to be encouraged. I mean, what a farce this is. So this is the cover-up. You now have David, the adulterer, David, the murderer, David, the concealer of his sin. And by the way, do you see that David is taking the privileges that Yahweh gave him as his king, and he is marshalling those privileges and resources to accomplish and cover his sin. Do you see that? The things that God had given to David are no longer a wellspring of thankfulness for him. They are the opportunity to accomplish and cover his sin. Verse 26, when Uriah excuse me, when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning, probably seven days, was over, David sent 
and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. Literally, in the Hebrew, it was evil in Yahweh's eyes. This text raises many questions that we might have that it does not seek to answer. It doesn't give us a lot of information about the inner workings and thoughts of all these other characters. What did Joab really think about this? Did Uriah have a suspicion at all about Bathsheba? People love to speculate about her. Was she ever at any point at all on board with any of this? The text gives us none of that. It gives us one summary statement, and it's the only time in the whole chapter that Yahweh is mentioned. But the thing, meaning the entire ordeal, the entire scandalous event taken as a whole, that thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This whole thing is David's sin. It is laid squarely at his feet. Well, now chapter 12, Yahweh is going to respond. Which brings us to our second point. Yahweh responds to David's disobedience with two things, kindness and consequences. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, and the Lord, and Yahweh, that is, sent Nathan to David. And you go, oh, okay, here comes the rebuke, and you're, you're right. But first, brothers and sisters, think about the fact that Yahweh, in his kindness, is sending the prophet Nathan to David. Can we compare that with Saul just for a minute? Remember when Saul was disobedient so many times over and when he spared the king of Agag and didn't kill him and the kingdom was removed from him? You remember what happened? The, the, the priests weren't talking to Saul because he had killed most of them. Yahweh was not talking to Saul. And Samuel, the prophet, he heads off and it says he doesn't see him again until after his death. God stopped talking to Saul. God abandoned Saul in his sin. It's very Romans 1. It's very given over. Contrast that with the fact that in the darkest moment of David's life, this sin that he had done all on his own to satisfy his lust, in his sin, God sends Nathan the prophet to him to bring about his repentance. We have to pause for a minute here, and we just have to understand that God does not abandon his children in their sin. He doesn't now. He doesn't then. He doesn't ever. Yahweh God does not abandon his children, of whom David truly was one, in their sin. Now, Nathan's going to tell David a parable. Now, David may not have known that this was a parable. We don't know. He might have thought this was an actual story, but Nathan nonetheless comes to him, and he tells him this parable about two men with sheep, and it is absolutely astonishing. Let's read it together. And Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, 
There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and he grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This parable is going to confront David with his failure and sin on two levels. The first level almost everyone notices, and the second level I think gets often overlooked. So start, let's start with the first way. This parable confronts David with his failure personally, and that is seen in the contrast between the rich man and the poor man, right? You have this rich man with resources, the poor man without resources, this rich man who has tons of sheep, this poor man who only has one sheep, right? Or lamb. (laughs) I guess when it's one, it's just a lamb. Is that right? Is that how it goes? Anyway, he just had the one. And the contrast there is obvious. It's like David Did you not have enough wives, which, by the way, you ought not to have had, but seeing as you do, was that not enough? Is that still not enough for you? You had to go take the wife of this upright man, Uriah the Hittite? His failure personally, but it also shows David and shows us his failure as the shepherd king who was to care for the sheep of the people of Israel, meaning the people. And that is seen in all of the descriptions that are given to describe the way the poor man in this story loved his one ewe lamb. It is a contrast between one man who sees sheep as a mere commodity to be used and even stolen and another that sees them as a precious commodity to be loved and cherished. David was the shepherd king, as I said earlier, who by his life and by pattern is supposed to point us to the ultimate, true and better David, who we sing about in that song all the time, who would be, who identified himself in John chapter 10 as the good what? Shepherd. David was to rule with justice and equity and thereby care for the sheep of Israel under his charge. Look at the beautiful words used to describe the care in verse 3. It says that he bought the lamb, as in with a price. He brought it up or grew it up. That signifies care. He let it eat of his morsel and drink from his cup. That is provision He carried it in his arms. That's tender affection. He treated it like a daughter. That's bringing it into his family. This was the way the shepherd king was supposed to be towards his people. And instead, David was a wolf. Devouring a precious ewe lamb that was supposed to be under his care. Now, It hasn't dawned on David yet that he's the guy being described in the parable. And so look what he says in verse 
5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now wait a minute. There was a prescribed penalty for the stealing of sheep in the Old Testament. And it was repaying back fourfold, which is mentioned here. Do you know what the penalty wasn't? Death. Do you see David's radically inflated, inflated zeal for the exorbitant punishment of this guy? He's like, kill the guy that did that. Kill him. I think it's a fair observation from this text and just an observation from life that those often who are the most bound up in their willfully unconfessed and hidden and cherished sin are most often the first to be brutal and harsh with others and to refuse that they should see mercy. Like David's conscience isn't dead here, but it's wildly out of skew. And it's because he's holding on to this sin. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, that famous line, you are the man. David, this is about you. Do you not see that? Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, Yahweh is about to respond to David through Nathan. Now, just for a moment, you guys, pretend that you haven't read, or maybe you haven't read, I don't know, but pretend you haven't read what comes next right now. Imagine what we would expect to hear. Nathan says, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. What would we expect to hear? David, did you not understand when I said, thou shalt not murder? Did you not understand when I said, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife? David, what about my law, which I know you know was unclear to you? And all of that would be fine and right and just and exceedingly well-deserved. But look what Yahweh says to David. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Yahweh recites for David his exceeding grace and promises that he had poured out upon him that he had utterly scorned and forgotten. Don't get hung up on that phrase where it says, I gave you your master's wives into your arms. It simply means everything that was Saul's in terms of the kingdom I gave to you. David didn't sin so grossly because he remembered Yahweh's grace and kindness so much. David sinned so grossly because he remembered Yahweh's grace and kindness far too little. Do 
Do you see that? Contrary to those who would think that you can't simply talk about the grace of Christ and expect believers to obey, we understand that it is the grace of God that motivates our obedience, and it was the grace and mercy and promises of God made to David that he had forgotten that led to his gross fall into such iniquity. It is the grace of God that melts the heart of the child of God. It is grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness, we read in Titus chapter 2. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, we read in Romans. There's a brief quote from Calvin that we put in the Weekender, and um, I'm going to read part of it to you now. It said, but we ought to observe the way in which faith is confirmed, even by having the office and power of Christ explained to us. It is therefore the duty of a godly teacher, in order to confirm disciples in the faith, to extol as much as possible the grace of Christ, and then this, so that being satisfied with that, we may seek nothing else. David knew God's law. We know God's law. But we, like David, pursue sin when we lose sight of God's grace and kindness to us and therefore think we need to be satisfied with something else. Look at verse 9. Why have you despised Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He says, why? Yahweh says to him, why have you despised the word of Yahweh? Brothers and sisters, all willful sin is that. It is a despising of Yahweh's word. And in particular, in the near context here, that is the word of his promises to David and also to us, When we sin, we are taking the promises that the Lord has made to us, we are despising them, we are treating them as if they are not enough for us, and we are pursuing something else instead. All willful sin is a despising of His promises. By the way, just as as a, I guess just encouragement, one of the things I have found in my life in the battle against sin and temptation, it is very helpful to identify when I'm tempted to sin against the Lord as specifically as possible, what is his promise to me that right now I'm being tempted to despise and set aside? What has he promised to me in terms of provision and kindness and grace and forgiveness and care that I am right now looking at and thinking, you know what, that that right there might not be enough for me. That's why I'm considering this sin. Because all sin, when we choose to do it, brothers and sisters, is the despising of the word and promises of Yahweh. That is the kindness of Yahweh in response to David's sin. But he also responds to him not just with kindness, but also with consequences. The kindness of God does not alleviate consequences for sin. And they are going to be fierce. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Oh, man. Um, the sword is the ins- it's an instrument of violence and death, right? 
And Yahweh says, as a consequence, David, the sword will never depart from your house. Some people, when writing about this, will say, that was going to be true until David died. And I'm thinking, no. It was going to be true about David's house as long as he had a house. And you might remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, just from last, last week, Yahweh promised David, he said, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. That David would, his kingly line would sit on the throne for forever until one day the ultimate true and better David would reign on his throne forever, which David understood. We know that from Acts chapter 2, by the way. This now in 2 Samuel 12, 10, to go along with the forever throne, the forever kingdom promised to David, you have the forever sword. Do, do you see how big of a problem this seems to be? You see this? Like, how, how, how could that go together? How could God's irrevocable promise to David to give him an eternal, everlasting throne go together with the fact that it now says the sword will never depart from his house? Who was the last in the kingly line of David to sit on his throne. Christ. The only way there can be a resolution between the eternal throne, the eternal house promised to David, and the eternal sword as a result of his sin is if those two realities were to meet in one person. Where the last and final descendant of David, who sits on David's throne, would be the last and final one on whom the sword of judgment would fall. And it is in that happening that redemption would be accomplished for David and for us and all who would ever believe in that Messiah. Not only... It is, not only were the non-revocable promises of God to David not revoked because they're not revocable, but the very consequence of David's sin would be used instrumentally by Yahweh in completing and bringing about those promises. We often live with the consequences of our sin, right? We, based on things that we have done in our lives, we are often reminded of sin that we have committed, either because of consequences we bear in our own body or consequences of relationships or a family that's been blown to bits, and we're constantly reminded of that sin because of those ongoing consequences, and it can tempt us to think that that maybe somehow just a little bit lessens God's promises to us that he has made to us in Christ. And we just have to know that it does not. The promises of God are irrevocable. There is consequences for sin, but those consequences do not cancel out his promises. They never, they never have, and they never will. 
Now, verse 11, he continues with the consequences. He says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Man, we're going to see that happen briefly in chapter 13. And this is rough. He says, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Horrifically, it would be David's own third-born son, Absalom, who would carry that out. Then this, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses and repents right then and there. And it's very short. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, that's all that's recorded here. Maybe that's all he said at the time, but we certainly know, as was read in the Scripture reading this morning from Psalm 51, we saw David's outpouring of confession and repentance before the Lord. So clearly, that's not all that he said ever about this, but that's all that's recorded here. I have sinned against Yahweh. And then this, and Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who is born to you shall die. Um, David deserved death, didn't he? I mean, we all deserve death because of our sin, but Dave specifically deserved, I call him Dave, David specifically deserved death because of how he broke the law. Adultery, murdered the penalties for those things was supposed to be death. And Nathan looks right at him and says, Yahweh has put away your sin, you shall not die. Just, just think with me for a moment. Because patterns in Scripture teach us things. Has there ever been a situation that you can think of in Scripture before where someone has overtly broken the law of God, knowing the penalty was death, it was promised to them, you shall surely die, the sin was committed, and then they didn't die? Has anything like that ever happened before? Think back to the garden. They broke God's law. They took of the fruit and ate. They knew that Yahweh had said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When they ate of it, did they die that day? Spiritually, they were separated from God, but they did not die that day. Something died. What died? A substitute died in their place. God killed an animal and gave them garments of skin to cover them. Remember that? And all I'm saying, and many others have noticed this pattern as well, is that David deserved death because he broke the law of God. And Nathan looks right at him, and he connects the non-death of David with the death of his innocent son. He's like, David, you have broke the law, but you will not die. Your son, however, will. This is teaching us something. This would not be by way of illustration, by way of example, this would not be the last time that an innocent son of David would die on account of sin, not his own. It's at this point that David falls on his face before Yahweh and seeks that the Lord might be merciful in specific regarding this child. 
It says, the Lord afflicted the child in verse 15. By the way, notice that Yahweh afflicted the child. This was the judgment that he brought. Yahweh afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Therefore, God, uh, David, David, therefore, excuse me, sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So he is broken. He is undone. He is not eating. It says, and we're going to skip just a little bit here in the interest of time, it says that those around him were, were, were concerned about him. And then the child dies. And no one wanted to tell him. Verse 19, how can we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. He was so stricken with grief, they thought he, may, he might be suicidal. We can't tell him the child is dead. But David picks up on this. He saw that his servants were whispering together. David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Verse 20, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of Yahweh and worshiped. He went down to his house, and when asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether Yahweh will be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David was so exceedingly convinced that Yahweh is gracious and kind. Even though Yahweh told him that the child will die, he still entreats him. And he says, who knows whether Yahweh will be gracious to me. He's like, as long as there is breath in that child's lungs, I'm going to pray. And he did. And when Yahweh took the child, he said, okay. He rose, washed his face, went into the temple of the Lord or before the Lord and worshiped. Some people read a whole lot into verse 23. I think it's a bit unwise to do that. I think it's simply saying that David is acknowledging, acknowledging the child has died. He has gone to the place of the dead. He doesn't believe that a resurrection is on, on schedule for that day, and he knows that he will face a similar fate one day. Now, it's at this point that someone else enters the scene. Verse 24. David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. Hey, Solomon's here. You know what Solomon means? It means peace or man of peace. Think about that. After all of this, after all of the sin that David has accomplished, pouring out himself now in repentance before the Lord, suffering the consequences of the death of the child of that union, and now this next child is born. They name him the man of peace. And then it says, and Yahweh, verse 24, and Yahweh loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah, which, by the way, means beloved of Yahweh. Yahweh, in his kindness, gives a message to David and Bathsheba through Nathan the prophet that he loves his son Solomon. He even gives him a second name to remind him of that. Well, it's at this point, there's a bit of a postscript. We see, beginning in verse 26, we see the, the tail end of this war that David had not gone out to fight where Joab is, is 
besieging the city of Rabbah. He's about, the city's about to fall. He calls David and says, David, you got to get over here. You'll let the city be called by my name. And David comes, and the city is defeated. The point of that is to see that while the kingdom is still going and David is still functioning as king, Yahweh's enemies are still being defeated, at least at this point, David has proven himself while humble and contrite and repentant, to not be the law-obeying king of Deuteronomy 17 that they needed and that we need. That brings us just briefly, exceedingly briefly, I told you, to chapters 13 and 14, which we'll do the briefest overview of. And I've simply called that the sword devours in David's house. Now, this starts off very, very personally, and I'm going to describe this carefully. I'd encourage you to read the two chapters entirely on your own. David's oldest son, Amnon, begins to be overwhelmed with a horrific desire to sin greatly against his half-sister, Tamar. And he is sick because he cannot figure out how to accomplish this sin and to take her. He goes to a cousin, Jonadab, who's a bit of a lowlife, says he's a wise person, or he's a crafty person, really. He's the kind of a person where if you needed to launder some money or bury a body, he'd be the kind of guy who would help you out. And he comes to him with this plan, and rather than saying you should not do that, he helps him devise a plan whereby he can take and rape his half-sister. And this happens in chapter 13. So you want to talk about the sword beginning with and not departing from David's house. You have this utter unspeakable sin that occurs between David's oldest son, Amnon, and his sister, Tamar. David's third-born son, Absalom, by the way, his second-born son, Kiliab, we haven't heard from in a long time or heard of at all. Most commentators think he's probably dead. So Absalom is enraged by the fact that this happened. And he, as one person said, he has the kind of hatred that can wait. He immediately begins plotting how he is going to extract vengeance on Amnon for doing this to his sister. And do you know why he felt like he had to do that? Because David did nothing. David, it says, the text says in verse 23, when David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But that's all he did. So Absalom comes up with this scheme. He invites the sons of David out to this party to shear all these sheep, and eventually while the party's going, his men rise up and kill Amnon. Well, he has to flee now. So Absalom, David's third-born son, now is in exile because he killed David's firstborn because of the sin that he did and David didn't take care of. And now you've got this rift between Absalom and David. And chapter 14 is all about Joab trying to scheme to get Absalom back. It doesn't say why he wanted to do that, but we can assume it had to do with wanting to ingratiate himself with who he assumed to be the next person in line for the throne. He comes up with this scheme, and he finds this woman who's noted uh, as the wise woman of Tekoa, a nearby city, and this plot is to tell David a story about her two sons fighting, and one of them killed the other one, and now the other one had to go into exile, and I'm going to lose my heir and my inheritance. David, can you step in and do something? And David says, yes, I will. And she says, oh, by the way, this is about you. And that convinces David to bring back Absalom from exile. So he does that. He brings him back. But not all the way back. He brings him back into Jerusalem, but he can't stay with the king. This relationship has gone icy cold 
Joab stops communicating to the king on his behalf, so Absalom sets his field on fire just to get him to come out and talk to him, and he says, Absalom says, get me an audience with my father, the king. He says in verse 32, if there's any guilt in me, let him put me to death. Verse 33, then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. In our culture, that would be a pretty warm reception, and theirs it was not. One commentator said that about chapter 14, it has this eerie feeling that it's not really about what it seems to be about, and he's right. What's happening is that Absalom, now back in Jerusalem, is setting himself up to make a coup attempt and to take the throne from his father David, as we'll see in coming weeks. But all of this is the outflow of the sword not departing from David's house. So what should we say, just briefly by way of conclusion? It is, what we are to walk away with this text from is not go and don't be like David. To be clear, I don't want to be like David in these chapters, do you? And I don't want you to be like David in these chapters. But if that's what we take away, then according to the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 5, we're already too late. When Jesus, the true and better David, finally shows up as the rightful king, in Matthew chapter 5, he begins to preach on the law of God. And do you remember the first two issues he takes up? Murder and adultery. Those two sins that David had failed at so horrifically and so publicly. And he says, you may have heard it said, you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, if anyone is angry with his brother, that he is guilty. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say anyone who lusts after a woman in his heart is guilty of committing adultery with her already in his heart. The point of that message was to communicate that we, although we have not perhaps sinned in the flesh in the likeness of David, we have sinned in our hearts in the likeness of David, and we desperately need someone to give us the righteousness that we don't have. That's why the Sermon on the Mount started off by saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. You know what? You don't hunger and thirst for what you have. You don't hunger and thirst when you're full. You hunger and thirst when you're starving and parched for the righteousness that you don't have and that you know that you need. Praise God that he's provided that righteousness for all who believe in the obedience of Christ. Father, I would pray that this morning we would be both stunned at the level of sin that a child of God is able to commit that we would also equally be overwhelmed at the grace poured out upon him in light of this, and that we, Lord, even now as we come to your table, would look to the true and better David who alone provides the righteousness that not only King David needed, but that we so desperately need and do not have of our own accord. His righteousness is our only hope, Lord. Thank you for your irrevocable promises that all who look to him in faith are granted that righteousness, are forgiven of their sins, and granted eternal life.
ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.